I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Proper Class Podcast. I'm Hannah Chiswick. And I'm Laura Checkley. And we are, of course, here to celebrate all things working class because if we don't... Who will? You literally Who will, I say? Who will? Sorry, Debris. Jesus. (laughs) As always, we sit down with a working class hero to celebrate their life and achievements and discuss just how they got to where they are today. And on that note, who are we celebrating this week, Han? Well, I'm about to lose any small amount of cool, well, that I never had actually, but I'm not ashamed to say I've been fangirling over this episode's guest for a long time and nearly lost my shit when I got to work with her all too briefly earlier this year. She describes herself as a dyslexic writer, grime poet, working class academic, pansexual, ex-Mormon. She is a playwright, screenwriter, performer, dancer, choreographer, award-winning author, presenter, speaker, <gasps> gasp for breath, and a host. I mean, the list just goes on. Stick two fingers up to an education system that failed to see past her dyslexia to her exceptional talents. She graduated top of her BA and MA class before going on to become an academic herself, as well as setting up the organisation Mouthy Poets, inspiring literally thousands of young people to engage with and create their own poetry. She has established herself as one of the most vital and prolific voices on stage and screen. Her debut grime musical, Poet in the Corner, premiered at the Royal Court in 2000. 2018. It was five stars across the board and saw her nominated for an Emerging Talent of the Year Award at the Evening Standard Theatre Awards. As I said at the start of this intro, she's one of the most inspiring women I can think of. She's a force of change, a pusher of boundaries and a dispeller of preconceptions. And luckily for us, she's this week's guest. A huge Proper Class podcast welcome to Deborah Debris Stevenson. Hey. Hi, hey. yeah. right. yeah. How's that listening you. to all that? Yeah. I- it's a bit emotional, I think. Yeah, often. You often forget what you've done, don't you? Definitely, definitely. I always think that you only think, you spend so much time thinking about what you're doing when you, you think, oh my God, all of that stuff that I've done and you just forget so much of it. I think so as well, as if you're ambitious as well, which you clearly are as well, the goalposts are constantly shifting, aren't they? There's always mm-hmm. something else to change. There's always something else to move forward. So, yeah, you forget and it's nice to remember. So I'm glad you enjoyed it anyway. <laughs> um, so, Debris, we start each week asking our guests to take us back to a place and time that has some meaning to them, somewhere that has a connection to their working class roots. So if you were able to today, where would you take us? 
I was thinking of um, the iron bridge at the end of my road. So I grew up next to a railway line, like a big railway line. In fact, my parents still live there now. And um, all these tiny, tiny terrace houses, this massive railway line. And then on the other side, there's um, a big uh, housing estate that was built. And there's just this little iron bridge that connects <laughs> the two places that goes over them. And I used to have to, you know, those little footbridges? Yeah, yeah. And... It's like a magic footbridge as well because these mm. bubbles always emerge like in the ground, like little hills. And no one's... What, like the tarmac on yeah, the... You know, yeah, but like... they're like quite big and they have to pop them and then like cut them off. And then it's really weird. I don't oh, know what that's weird. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like someone once told me that nobody knows why they're there. I'm sure someone does know. <laughs> <laughs> I love Probably that my brothers. as a kid, how yeah. magical that would have been though. Yeah. I really remember because I used to rollerblade over it when I was a kid and like you'd be like... Yeah, fall over Tricks. on these tiny yeah. little hills. Ah, it's another new one. Goddammit. Yeah, exactly. And then like someone would come and chop it off. Um, but yeah, I've always just felt a real connection to it. I used to have to walk over it to get to school. It felt like, I don't know, this symbolic place. It's quite high. So you can see like most of Ilford from it and you can see the trains and you can see the estate on one side and then all of our terraced houses on the other. And it just, when I was little, if I got stressed out because our house was so tiny... If it was really raining, I've always loved the rain. I just mm -hmm. go up there and just stand on the bridge and you can see the sky. And I don't know, it just always felt like a good place to be peaceful, you yeah, know, and it felt very like... serene. In many ways, it's very, very grotty as a place. Do you know what I mean? Often smells of urine. Often, <laughs> I really, the other day I clocked that there's like these spikes on the top of it to stop pigeons landing on it. And someone had put a beer can on every single spike, <laughs> like some sort of Christmas decorations. <laughs> I love that commitment, how long that would have taken. Yeah. And how many beers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and was it the same fella yeah. or person? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I've just always felt very attached to it. It's funny, those places, aren't they? Because you don't see that they're grim or, or you mm. know, they're just something that feels like really reassuring and homely because well, they're... I suppose especially as, as well if it was a little bit of escape for you as well, like a little safe haven. And um, did you go up there to get inspired at all? I do now because it always... And I remember when I moved back into my parents' house after going to university and living in Nottingham for seven or eight years, I remember going back and then I was just really stressed out one day and I walked over the bridge again. And it always just, I don't know, it reminds me of my childhood. Mm. It, I used to have to go over it to go to primary school, like every day on my own. And then I stopped going over it to go to secondary school. But that estate means a lot to me as well. Because when that got built, that stopped me going to the school that I wanted to go to. I lived like near a really, really good secondary school. Um, and then they built the estate. And that secondary school deliberately tightened its catchment area wow. so that no one from that housing estate could go to it which is insane because it's literally about a three minute walk wow. from that school so for the, and it's the best it gets the best stats in like the whole borough so that got tightened both my older brothers went to grammar school but because I'm dyslexic my mum didn't let me take my 11 plus so if they'd gone to that school I would have gone anyway but they because they went to grammar school I didn't and I had to go to the worst school in a neighbouring borough, which was like 45 minutes from my house. Wow. The other way. And how, imagine they've managed to tighten it so much for a three-minute walk that you have to go 45 minutes. I mean, how It's crazy. Bullshit. And it meant I went to a school like, where no one, that. I knew no one at my school either. And it was really like, I remember that day. <laughs> I was thinking loads about education during the pandemic because, you know, I was having to do the homeschooling business. But just seeing what different schools were offering. Suddenly we're talking a lot to people who didn't realise. Like a mate of mum's going, oh, you know, state school. 
saying, oh, uh, the kids have got their Mandarin class today. And I was like, Mandarin? My That's s- amazing. Isaac's school, my son Isaac, they were messaging us to say, you know, none of the, if anyone's got any trouble trying to get to a computer, the school are going to see if we can get some second-hand ones off the... And I thought the idea that state education in is in any way equal is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. What was school like? How was your experience of school? <laughs> Many, many different things. I mean, yeah, it was really lonely at first um, because I didn't know anyone. And I was just like so weird in so many ways, like growing up Mormon. And I felt very isolated. Um, I kind of spent most of my time in the library, even though I couldn't really read just because it was safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was bullied quite badly for the first few years. But ultimately, I think it served me really well. Like, that was a really, really horrible period of time. But I feel like I slowly, you know, made friends with other people that also might be called weirdos, but actually were just, you know, an interesting amalgamation of things that cannot be classified, you know? (laughs) Um, And I think that's where I found grime, which was really beautiful for me. There are a lot of lyricists in that school making music because the school, you know, the only thing we got the highest in, statistically speaking, was truancy. (laughs) That's what we could brag about as a school. Um, You know, people find other currencies, don't they? You know, And the most valuable thing it taught me is, okay, we as a school might be seen as like trash in so many ways, but there is so much brilliance here. Yeah. And you start to see like, okay, that's the grades you get, the stats of your school, that's not everything. You know, I think it really taught me that really early. And what Grime really taught me was like, make it happen on your own you can invent your own path if one doesn't exist already like that being attached to being dyslexic as well so I think ultimately I'm really glad I went there and I think it's given me a real kind of bloody mindedness actually in terms of my career it's like okay someone like me doesn't exist something like this doesn't exist work out how you just work it out Um, I always have that kind of this is what I want to make happen these are why I want to make it happen this is why it's urgent we work it out. We work it out. We find the tools. We build the pathway. So it was rough, but I think, um, as Dave Chappelle would say, it was expensive knowledge. It was a worthwhile <laughs> investment. Did you explore poetry at school or did it was just a natural progression from grime into poetry for you out they, of hours? You know they I mean? kind of overlap. So how I first started consuming grime was my older brother, him bringing home like the tapes that people were recording off of pirate radio and showing them to me. And I would memorize the lyrics like because I couldn't really read or write. So I didn't get properly assessed as dyslexic till I was 21 when it was described as the clearest case of dyslexia my assessor had ever seen. And part of what makes it so clear is this gap between my ability to communicate verbally and my ability to communicate um, when I like... my comprehension when reading. It's really that gap, which mm. kind of feels like, imagine you're really good at sprinting and then you just hit a body of water and you can't swim. Mm. Yeah, It's like that feeling of like, what the hell is going on? Mm. Which is two way really. It also really confuses teachers. Yeah. Teachers start treating you like you're lazy or like there's, you're being silly or you're, do you know what I mean? They don't yeah. understand or you're not Frustrated. paying attention. It frustrates them, doesn't it? Yeah. So they can see you're intelligent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that was always... Even in primary school, I moved up five English sets in five days. Wow. Like they really didn't understand. And I had a TA, I had like a personal assistant. And I remember getting to year six and then being in a special science class with my best friend who's really, really smart and being like, why are we in the special class? Because I'm in the stupid special classes and you're, she was like, no, you're really good at science. Like, so I was like, oh, 
because it's just presented as being stupid or being clever, isn't it? It's yeah, not the two options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, that is a ridiculous binary. Um, but yeah, they kind of overlapped. So I was struggling with reading and stuff. The other thing that was great about going to a school where I didn't know anyone is it kind of was a clean slate. So I knew I didn't want a TA. I hated that. I didn't tell anyone that I was dyslexic, even though my mum had always said that, but I'd not been properly assessed because they didn't really assess you then. Um, so I didn't talk about it. And my English teachers actually really liked me. The teachers really liked me because I didn't really have any friends. I was actually quite focused and um, was listening to these tapes. I could memorise them really well. I remember I'd always talk out loud to myself on my way home and make stories up and just always talking out loud, talking out loud, talking out loud. So my English teachers really liked me and they started sort of giving me poetry at the same time as I was hearing these lyrics. So they kind of were synonymous. Mm -hmm. And I remember the poem um, Half Cast by John Agard, that, us seeing the video of that. And obviously, so my school was like really, really mixed in, in every way, really. And that poem really resonated with everyone. And then we went to Poetry Live. Wow. And I probably remember it slightly more dramatically than was the reality. But you got taken to Poetry Live. Poetry Live, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Wow. So we went to Poetry Live. But I think at that time, like most schools would be taken. It's quite standard. And um, my year stood up and recited that poem with him. Wow. I really remember that. But I think wow. part of that is because lyricism was so ingrained in the culture of my school. Yeah. There were so many MCs. Like, that was just what you did. Yeah. Like, everyone spat bars. Like, that was the thing, right? So that kind of an oratory tradition and also probably part of the fact was that so many people in my school were of West Indian heritage and West African heritage. And it's just that that oral it's tradition, the, yeah. you know, which I think also comes from me being, um, my family being religious, this thing of telling stories, telling stories, reciting poems, reciting songs, reciting lyrics, all of those things kind of like came through my life at once in a way. My mum even used to play me audiobooks all of the time because I couldn't read. So it was just this thing of like, say it out loud, say it out loud, like that being a literary tradition, seeing John Agard, seeing these MCs around me. And then the other pivotal person was Kayo Chingonyi, who is a poet that went to my church at the time and he went to a school near me and he was a garage MC. But then he won this massive competition to perform a poem at the Millennium Dome. Can you remember writing your first bit of poetry? How old were you when you did that? I probably would have been about... 15, 16, 17, around that time. I remember the first thing I actually, I don't talk about this very often because my first proper performance was at the Roundhouse, but I had one performance at my school. I did a poem at my school, like talent show. It's brave. And I remember being outside afterwards and all the kids being like, oh my gosh, that was so good, that was so good. And then turning around and my parents were standing there and they just went, do you want to come home now? Mm. They didn't say anything. They never mentioned it ever again. And I think it was about dancing, but they thought, like, I think they thought it was about sex or something, like, which the two are kind of weirdly synonymous for them, I think, being super religious or whatever. But yeah, they never spoke about it. Then I went to the, Kayo sent me to the Roundhouse and I did the programme there with Jacob Samler Rose. And then the first proper time I performed was at the Slam there. And I really, really remember that. I remember that because the timing of it is three minutes. I did a poem that was one minute long. And I remember just thinking like, oh, I'm crap. Like, this isn't going to run. This isn't going to ever. Kaya was there. He was in the slam as well. And he's like three, four years older than me. And obviously I've looked up at him this whole time. He's the reason that I'm here. He's the reason that yeah, I'm here. Yeah. And I performed the poem, shaking, shaking, sat back down. And he just went, you're going to win. Mm-hmm. Like, I really remember that feeling. And I didn't. He won, obviously. But <laughs> I was third. Still got a trophy. But I was like, all I needed to hear was that from him. Yeah. Like, hearing that level of belief. belief. Yeah. From someone you admire. It's like, you're the reason. 
I just remember how rowdy that space was. Like, it was just like people would go crazy. Like, it felt like pirate radio. How I yeah, think yeah, of a pirate yeah. radio set. Like, that kind of, if you if you smash it, everyone just grabs you and shakes you. And, like, that kind of, like, almost aggressive love. Like, that's just like, you're so brilliant. My whole head's going to explode kind of thing. So that was really special. And that felt like... I think I always felt like what's beautiful about religion so often is that community. Mm-hmm. But obviously when you're rejected from that, mm-hmm. the level of isolation you feel is so profound. And I think I often see all these other cultures that are so indicative of London really adopting me. And I think that community was, yeah, was my salvation in so many ways. And, and how old were you when you were spotted, at, well, when you won at the Roundhouse? I was 17. And yeah. it was that moment for you, it was like, this is, this is what I was born to do. This is my calling. Yeah, I think it was. One thing I always say to like young people is like, just try loads of stuff until you get that yeah. kick, you know? Yeah. And I think I was lucky to find like what I loved like that, that young. But I also like really own the fact that I was, I was trying, I was knocking on a whole lot of doors, you know, I was dancing, I was studying philosophy, I was studying psychology, I was, you know, any free thing I was doing that I could do um, really made use of that free Oyster card at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think like the opening up of language for you, because language is a big thing for you, isn't it, in all its various forms, but like, do you think that opening up of language made you go, you know what, I am smart and I can study and I do want to know about philosophy and I do want to go to university and do you think that opened up those possibilities for you in a different way? You know what, again, like I think going to the school that I went to is really helpful in a way, like because my brothers are like, just really exceptionally academic you know like my they both went to grammar school my middle brother he was Citibank's highest grossing trader by the time he was 24 he was a millionaire he retired when he was 28 oh my god um he is exceptional you know he's literally Matilda like reading every (laughs) book in the house you know here's me can't read I'm like 10 or whatever so when I was little I really thought I was stupid I just thought like well I'm not like you do you know what I mean um and going to a secondary school where by virtue of the setup, you had to think about intelligence differently. And as hard as that school was, I've worked in secondary school since. I think about the teachers in that school and I'm like, you are incredible. Like to yeah. make the level of investment, you know, I still have the poetry book that one of them gave me or, you know, the staying in at lunch and talking to me and giving me like all these different references and just the level of time they had yeah. for me with all the other crazy things going on in that school all of the time. And I know, I don't know what our status, I, we must have been like in special measures. Like I can't imagine how we wouldn't have been. And I know what it's like for teachers when you're in that kind of setting. So yeah, I think because I... I didn't always get good grades. Ultimately, I did get quite good grades, but at first I didn't. Even on my degree, actually, like I got really poor grades in the first year. And that's often how I work. You know, part of that is my dyslexia is it takes me a really long time to like understand what the hell is going on. You know, like that drowning feeling, like (laughs) I don't understand the rules very often. I can be quite slow, but once I've got it, I'm super, super fast. I was really thinking this morning, like being neurodivergent is really rough. Like people often think you're like weird or mad or rude because when you enter in a space, like you panic, you know, you panic because that's your experience of learning stuff Yeah, is panic. Is people think you're being lazy. Is people think you're being rude. Is people thinking it's like, so you're really worried about those things when you walk in a room, you know, Mm. but I work hard. Like that's the thing I learned is like, okay, 
I will learn how I learn. I will learn why these rules are here. I will, I put that work in. And I think in that school, teachers really valued that and really saw that um, and really invested in me. And I've come to really value that. If someone invests in me, mm. like I will pay that back in dividends. I will hold on to those people and be like, how can I give that back? I think that's such a, I feel like that's my, I always think that's my superpower is that I found learning really hard, but I didn't learn facts. And I found that learning facts very, very difficult, but I learned to learn. Yeah. And now I can, I'm so quick. Like I know, like I can. You know your process and what yeah, helps also, I, you. I can yeah. eat, like I just decided in lockdown, right, I'm going to do a whole, like I just want, I've always wanted to do psychology. So I just did a free course that Yale were doing. And Rich. I just was like, I'm going to do that. And then I want to learn about, and I can do it now really quickly because I know mm. how I learn. I think a lot of people, although it was painful and difficult in some ways, getting to that point, I feel like some people never get that chance. Mm. All they do is receive. It's incredible because like, I, I actually, I think I do the opposite. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I've never been diagnosed with dyslexia, although you and I have this conversation all the time. I need to be tested for sure. Um, but, you know, I come from a generation where you just got on with it. My brother was really dyslexic. He is really, really dyslexic. And what happens to us is, is this sense of paralysis. I get it with, like, talking. You know, I can't always articulate my... My mouth can't keep up with my brain. Yeah. So I, I'm often better on paper where I can yeah. just take my time. And so I really admire you pushing and going, no, I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to better. Because so, actually what I often do is go, I won't read. I'll, do, I'll just like listen to something instead and I'll go and escape into comedy. That's what I did. It was my <laughs> escape to go and just go and be funny. Um, but I think it's I think it's just such a great strength. And you have that in abundance as well. You go, no, I'm going to learn. I'm going to push myself. And I do the opposite. I go, no, I'll just go and watch a bit of telly. <laughs> so, yeah, I admire it. Um so, uh, Roundhouse happened. What happened next for the journey then? Yeah, so the Roundhouse did so much for me and I will always sing its praises. Like, that was home for a long time in so many ways. So, I um, was involved in Turning Point Festival, which is a massive festival that they did there. 10,000 people, three days, all curated by young people. And I hosted that and I was really at the heart of that in so many ways. Did all the auditioning for like 200 unsigned acts, did all the programming for that. It was great. And it just really set me up with so many contacts. And mm. yeah, it was brilliant. Hosting was terrifying on the main stage. I remember that at the same time, they'd looped me in with Channel 4. It was a show called Year Dot, which followed me for like the most central year of my life. Um, so doing Turning Point and going to university. They were okay. literally with me when I got my A-level results, which was oh, horrifying. Yeah. As <laughs> if that's not a stressful enough I moment. Know, I think so, yeah. And I didn't get the results I wanted and I had to go through clearing. So it was all like a lot. So I did that, went to Nottingham University on their creative and professional writing course there. Actually going through clearing and doing that course is one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, I always live my life by this idea of disruption as opportunity mm. and I can't there's so much disruption in my life right now and I have to keep remembering that like mm. often you know I remember one of my lecturers at uni saying you know every day breakdown is a breakthrough I love that and it's so hard to be told that <laughs> yeah. where someone says that to you in the middle of the breakdown you're like oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want the breakthrough <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> that's one of the things you say retrospectively <laughs> um, but yeah it is so so true and that course which doesn't exist now which is such a shame education departments around the country have been like tightened and tightened and stuff but yeah 
part of the education department is widening participation and they very often design courses that get people into the university in unconventional ways. So it was the creative and professional writing course started off as a course solely for like non-conventional students and you could pay like module per module and literally build a degree over like 10 years. Wow. So there were like people that have retired, people that have been made redundant, people that were just doing it on the weekends and evenings. So literally I had courses on evenings and on weekends, which made, meant I could basically be a waitress full time, which I needed to be to earn the amount of money that I needed to, to like cover my living costs. And it meant that there were only three of us that were like 18 on the course. You know, we had people that were in their 80s, their 50s, Lovely. their 40s with kids, with other jobs. It's so enriching as well though, isn't it? Like, so know. especially as me, like, you know, working class from Ilford, never really left Ilford. That's such a specific place, like yeah, yeah. culturally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm love that like that is so much of who I am and when people are like what's your culture I'm like to be honest probably Ilford like I don't know <laughs> how else to explain like yeah. who I am culturally but it was you know to explain to Ishmael from South Africa in her 80s like what my experience has been and where I'm writing from I think taught me so much like learning how to connect you know one of my closest friends Pippa was in her 40s you know she'd done a PhD in computer science and now is transitioning and it also taught me like something all 18-year-olds need to know, especially in a country like ours with the education system we have, this is not the end. No, no, no. You can have so many lives, you know, and it was so nice to see all these different people at all these different junctures starting again in a way and entering that room and telling their stories and trying to work out, which really has kind of become the crux of how I work now, which is like, how do I get my life experience to connect with your life experience even though they seem a million miles away like how do we find the venn diagram of us in our work and i think that was so valuable for me when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I wanted to ask you about um, Mouthy Poets, Mm -hmm. um, uh, the organization that you set up. I just want to know about that because, I mean, accessibility into anything creative is so tricky when you, you know, I think particularly come from a deprived background and even like, you know, growing up working class, I didn't have anything really in front of me. I just happened to stumble on a dance school around the corner and thank God someone took me on to the next level, you know, meeting somebody going, they need, you need to go here and you need to do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, Hannah and I talk about accessibility into the arts all the time. It's something we're really passionate yeah. about. So what obviously inspired it um and how that's going and yeah just tell our listeners a bit about it because I think it's incredible what you're doing it's sort of inspiring a younger generation of poets right yeah yeah what's mad actually now is now I've kind of gone in going into the tv and film industry now is almost learning about how much I've had to learn about my privilege and the lack thereof retrospectively Mm. you know so realizing (laughs) you know now I've gone into tv I'm like you know what if I like was from a middle class background or and went or went to a private school I probably would have been doing this when I was 20, 21. We speak about that all you the know? time. Like, yeah. I was just like, you know, I probably would have been acting when I was a teenager. I probably like would have, all of these things that I have to fight for so hard now to have space in. It is quite sickening when I try not to get to think about it too much because it can get very depressing, to be honest. Yeah. But um, how how small that circle is, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is, is quite terrifying. Um, but anyway... I didn't know about that then. <laughs> All I knew was that, you know, organisations like Apples and Snakes, the Roundhouse, the South Bank Centre, British Council, you know, at that point I'd gone to China, I'd toured America, I'd toured Europe, I'd made shows and companies in Europe, in Germany, like all these experiences that were just impossible to me. One of the privileges I had become acutely aware of was coming from London. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, regardless of, of anything else is like how much that change is a game changer. So, you know, I was at uni, um, I'd started doing various sort of youth projects, um, one at New Art Exchange called Yard, um, been working with Writing East Midlands and just meeting lots of young people. I'd done some work at some schools. Um, the head of my course, Nikki Valentine, she'd bring me into shadow on projects. She then saw me teach and advised that school to keep me on as writer in residence afterwards. So I got like, literally came out, got a job. I was like, oh, can I get some teaching experience by doing your summer courses? They're like, yeah, we'll pay you to run our summer courses. They just did so many good things for me. They also helped me fundraise to start Mouthy, actually. Like, it was like three grand or something tiny. But, um, but anyway, I was meeting all these young people that were just so brilliant. And there was some provision, though not lots, for dancing and acting mm. and stuff. But I was like, there's nothing for no. writers. There's some for music. There's Community Recording Studio, which is amazing. And I've worked with them, but not just for writers. And I was also really obsessed with the model that the Roundhouse have, which is like, actually, the arts is a great opportunity just to build your CV, period. Yeah. And these skills yeah. are skills for life, period. Yeah, yeah. Like, regardless of wanting to be a writer, like, you cannot want to be a writer, but learning to communicate effectively, to put on events, Definitely. like, all of this stuff, just great CV building, life building, life affirming stuff. Um, so yeah, it was Be Your Day, who was um, one of the producers at, the, at Nottingham Playhouse. She booked me for an event. 
And I was talking about this idea and it was kind of a combination of her and someone in marketing, I think, or something like that (laughs) at Nottingham Uni, them being like, look, there's this little pot of funding. We think you should apply for it. We'll help you. And B being like, I want you in this building. Like, I see what you're doing. I want you. It's kind of those two people being like, you need to do something. And I was like, okay, I will. And I literally went like door to door. I went to the master's course at Nottingham Trent. I went to youth groups and I was like, look, do you want to come? It was three pounds. And I think the first session, like 30 people came. Like loads and loads of people came to the first session. And yeah, it just grew and grew and grew. And I mean, one of my favourite things about it was the mix. It was 15 to 30, you know. That's amazing. I was teaching at Nottingham University at that point as well. So one of my favourite things would be people from, students from the uni, which had, you know, that degree had completely changed at that point. It was then, I was lucky to get one or two people that weren't traditional 18-year-old, you know, A-level students, you know, that course. But um, they'd be like, I've never heard a Nottingham accent before. You know, people from that degree coming to that. So it was a really nice mix of people from Nottingham and different ages all working together to learn to communicate through writing and performance. And then they would organise every aspect of our events as well. And as soon as possible, we ran these internships that people would get paid for. People could end up working for us. You know, we fund, you know, I'm skipping a lot of stages because it existed (laughs) for six years. You know, we toured the country. I set up a version of it in Germany called Leuvenmau, which means lion mouth. We had an exchange between the two of those. Loads of amazing things came out of that. Um, little small presses. The Young Poet Laureate did our program. Someone got Fulbright scholarship that went over to America. Two people got scholarships to tour America as well. So just like loads of things came out of it. Something that um, I know me and you've spoken about actually, but and you've it, you've sort of alluded to it a couple of times in there. But I feel like me and Laura have spoken about this a lot. You were saying then about like if you'd had a different privilege or a different background, you probably would have got started earlier. Mm. And that's definitely something we've spoken about. And uh, you were also talking then about part of what you were doing with Matthew is thinking about ways to give people paid internships. And you were also talking about, you know, like people offering you, we'll pay you to run the summer scheme. And and I think that money is the one thing, sort of like this thing that we don't talk about. You're not supposed to talk about money. It's very British. topic of coin. You're not really supposed to (laughs) talk about about money. And uh, yeah, I feel like, people often ask me, you know, I'm a female theatre director, has being a woman really held you back? Yeah, a bit. But I think the thing, without a doubt, that has been my personal biggest hurdle is not having independent wealth, having to work, having to take jobs, not being able to sit back for years and end. And I know you've got like really strong views on money and working class people in the arts. Yeah, class is is in a way, it feels like the one that's really lagging behind because you can't see it. That's Mm. something that makes it really difficult um, in terms of us trying to equalise the playing field. I think money is is a huge issue and it's something that I talk about a lot. I mean, we tried as much as possible to always pay people, particularly, I can't remember who said this to me, but someone was like, think about what your product is. If your product is the development of the person, if that's what matters more than anything, then okay, maybe you're not paying them, though you should think about whether that will stop certain people being able to do it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if your product is first and foremost the art that they're performing or writing, whatever, then pay them properly um, yeah, it's this weird kind of dynamic that I get now, even though I'm still relatively early in my career, is like, oh, but it's for the it's for the good that you believe in, so we shouldn't pay you. Mm-hmm. It's like that in and of itself becomes an issue. You're like, let's say you're working with a group of young people that are at risk. And you're like, okay, you know, they group of young people at risk, so we're not going to pay you properly. It's like, well, then if you're trying to get those young people into the industry, they will never be able to work for you. 
because yeah, yeah. they don't ha- they yeah. are going to especially in London they're always going to be struggling to like get a mortgage and having kids they don't have any of that infrastructure so if they're not getting paid properly by you they can't accept that job no. so I just think if you're paying like half of equity minimum which that situation has exactly happened to me and I chose to fundraise the rest of my fee but it's just like it becomes problematic because then they never have anyone to look up to that is from their background yeah. as well but I understand the intention but I get that all the time like can you do this thing that you care about and it's a bit different like don't get me wrong if it's someone on the ground like I was that I just know has no access to that money that's slightly different but very often it's like the Organizations. BBC yeah you know and yeah. it's just like I know that money exists somewhere <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like when you're an actor and you know and someone asks you to go and do a fringe production and you see it's full and you know they're charging 35 45 quid for a fucking ticket and you're like hold on I'm I'm barely getting enough to travel in the week what the fuck am I doing yeah but, it's also but then you so feel lucky that, well, I have to work, I have to... It's mm. always at that beginning part of your career where you're just totally taken advantage of because they know you have to get a, something on your CV, that you have to get off the ground and that you're, that you're grateful to work. And that always happens a lot with actors as well. It's, it, and it's so frustrating and it's no wonder that so many brilliant and talented people drop off because they're like, I have to, drop, I have to hop off now because I can't sustain this financially. I need to like pay get, my rent. You can't get into it, you can't stay in it, you can't progress in it because... And I think it's, it's in big ways that you've just spoken about, of course, like not paying people. Yeah. But I remember us speaking about going how much time we spend persuading people to pay us what they've already agreed to pay us. Yeah, ca- Waiting flow. for money, cash flow. Cash flow is a massive, Huge. massive issue. And that is something I found particularly at this stage in my career, also because I'm getting paid bigger sums of money. Yeah. So it's like, actually, if you don't pay me that, that's like a quarter of my annual salary yeah. that I'm missing, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I've had to have some really serious conversations about that. That's like, actually, the only reason I've been able to carry on doing this is because I live with my parents and I have a good credit card. Those things in and of themselves as options are massive privileges. And I've had some really like, some really serious conversations and actually make some big shifts on who I will accept working with. Because mm. what's been interesting is when I've had that conversation, everyone says the same thing. Oh, it's just the way it is. Sometimes you don't get paid for three months. Six, I've not well, been paid for six months. Way. Is that so? I've been, I've been <laughs> waiting on like a quarter of my annual salary for like six months, and I'm doing the work, and I have no contract, but it's all in email. Unbelievable. And I had to I had to really sit some people down, and everyone says it's just the way it is. Then I stop them and I go, okay, that's not acceptable. We're all agreed that this there is massive things wrong with this industry. This is a central thing that is central. making it inaccessible. Yeah. And some people will go, sorry, that's just the way it is. Other people will go, oh, okay. And the funniest thing was that twice people went, we've got really good diversity policies. And I was like, okay, well, they don't work. (laughs) (laughs) So like, can you listen to me? I'm asking you to think differently. And you know what? If you want to engage with me, every project I've ever done, regardless of whether I'm the writer or the performer, I've always been involved on this side. I'm saying, yeah, like, so if you want to buy me, part of that is me meeting with your team and talking about how the building is accessible, about how the text is accessible, how the ticketing is. I was like, can we start putting in my contracts that we have to have dynamic ticket pricing? I have brought 30 people on stage with me and called them performers for the so sake of free there. tickets. <laughs> I was like, I don't care, you know? And it's just like, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm not going to work with you. Tell us a bit about um, writing or creating, being in um, Poet in the Corner, what that was like, what that whole experience was like, being at the Royal Court and that whole project. I mean, yeah, Poet's a Poet in the Corner, which, you know, is essentially the story of my life, the story we've kind of been telling, really, you know, the grime musical version. And also, (laughs) is in a way, 
is about, we're talking about the inspiration for that was going back home and seeing like all that talent that I grew up with and thinking, you know, because at this point I'm working at Nottingham University, I'm touring the world and feeling like so many of these young people, they're not getting where I am. Like, why is that? You know, I'm starting to see some of that infrastructure, to see that glass ceiling, to be in that ivory tower and see who the doors that are being closed and whose faces, you know, part of me thinking, okay, probably part of the reason I'm here and some of those people aren't is because I'm white. Do you know what I mean? Like being aware, because I'm quite well spoken. That is yeah. quite basic things. Even certain rewiring I'd done subconsciously, I'd started dressing different. Mm-hmm. I'd started talking different. Not even consciously. And I remember the day I thought, no, I ain't doing that anymore. Came into work in a tracksuit. And I was like, no. Because also some people be like, yeah, you have to do that. And I'm like, I'd like to think we're at a point where we can start changing that and saying professional doesn't need, you know. Look one way. Exactly. Because that's a massive issue. You know, people not being allowed to have locks or not being able to have camera. Like the racism and classism that is inherently built. There was that tweet the other day about one of the Olympic announcers not pronouncing her Uh, THs. Do you know what I mean? It's just like... No, I actually want to be someone out there openly, like being who I am and being successful and saying that can look like this. And sound like this. And yeah. And I've been called common as muck as a joke. Do you know what I mean? Like that, Often, has, ha- that has happened. That happens. That's when people think that's all right, though. It's a funny thing. People make that comment. You speak about like, People make that comment all the time. It impersonate my accent. Yeah, Hannah, all right, Hannah, yeah. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, all the time. But still. I'll, well, I was in a comedy double act to me, used to get described as brash. And yeah, like we're having happens. a fight outside Feisty. a kebab shop and it's like, but we've just got London accents, mate. <laughs> yeah, you weren't at all brash. That's the funny thing <laughs> no, about it. quite old-fashioned, <laughs> actually, weren't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, all of that stuff. It's um, I did a, uh, I was talking to Laura about this, but I had an interview a couple of weeks ago for a job that I'd actually been approached for. I won't go into too much detail, but they'd approached me for it. And then they said, somebody in the consultancy firm needs to speak to you. So I spoke to this person on a, um, said, oh, we want you to Zoom. And at the end of the meeting, I'd already had a phone interview and they were like, you're amazing, you're perfect for this position. This other person went, it's been really very useful to see and hear you in person. And I thought, yeah. That made me so angry. I know exactly what that means. And that process ended there, even though they'd approached me. And I thought, yeah. I said to them, I'll be in rehearsal. So I sat in a rehearsal room. I was in my, I was wearing something like this, addressing some trainers, had my hoops in <laughs> and I was speaking as me. And I thought, yeah, I could just tell yeah. that sometimes I can tell that my accent grates people. They find mm. it, I can see it happen in people where they, it makes them sort of a bit, particularly in theatre, that's still very, very theater, elitist, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, has terrible sort of tendencies to, to classism and um, I could just tell and he, you know the person actually saying it's been very useful to see and to hear you in person I thought yeah why Yeah. because why, why? Even that would that? only be why useful if that? I was an actress and you needed to see what I was going to yeah. look like on camera but for that thing it had absolutely nothing to do with it, it and was... I've, I've heard so many stories like that and sometimes it's about class and sometimes it's about race and sometimes it's about gender and sometimes like and sometimes people are aware of it and sometimes it's an unconscious bias. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. I saw it a lot um, yeah. with Mouthy, which was so, you know, such an amazingly, beautifully mixed group. And I just feel like by virtue of my life experiences, I'm this weird kind of middle person. Like I'm kind of everything and I'm nothing, you know, whether that's being like raised really religious, but now I'm an atheist or like being pansexual, but being in heteronormative passing relationships or being like, you know, I'm just all of these weird middly things. And people often think I'm one thing, but I'm actually another thing that has enabled me to be this kind of weird social car- carrier pigeon, yeah, you know, yeah, between yeah, groups. <laughs> and I can, I can pass as a lot of things or people assume I'm a lot of things. And with that, I feel like comes a responsibility. I could see a lot of things or people say a lot of things to me and I feel a real responsibility to that, to be like, sometimes it feels like, yeah, I can... The way I described it someone the other day, it's like, at the moment, it feels like someone's fingers are in the door. 
you know, in terms of changing the industry and representation and things being more equal. And it's, the door is really heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and someone's trying to close it and you're like, ah. And sometimes we have to swap. You're like, quickly, you come in. <laughs> and sometimes we like pry it open enough to get someone in. And then, yeah, yeah. You know, and there's this sense of, you know, for a bit I just went through that classic white person thing of feeling all of the guilt of like, oh my God, woe is me. It's so bad that this has happened. Maybe I should just hide in a closet and, you know, whatever. And then I was like, actually, sometimes I get in the room and I could be like, ah, none of the people I love will like help me get where I am or in the room and like run out. Or I could be like, let's smash the room up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's where all the money and the resources are. Let's slowly pry this apart and like get some of this resources that I seem to have access to. Some reasons will be because I'm good at stuff. Some reasons will be that have nothing to do with anything fair. You know, let's change some stuff. Yeah. And that's partly what Poet was about. It was like, the first thing I wanted to do was just, okay, I'm working at Nottingham University. I'm teaching all these poems. Grime is just as hard as this. Yeah. And it was during the grime renaissance, but there was also loads of things happening in the media, like just it was getting like really hyper-criminalised and, you know, people were getting arrested for their lyrics. And, you know, there was just this kind of... It happens with Carnival as well. And it's just like, it is just flat-out racism. You know, like Carnival got called The Purge one year. Oh, God. You know, when it actually has year-on-year year has better crime statistics than Glastonbury, which constantly gets lauded as there being like the best thing ever. And it's like the way, you know, any sort of black art form is hyper-criminalised in the media is just wrong. Like the level of wrong that it is. And I just thought, you know what? This thing raised me. It taught me how to write. I'm in an academic institution. I just want to apply the same skills that I applied to Byron or whatever to that. Like I just, that's all I wanted to do at first was just academically analyse Dizzy Rascal's lyrics, you know, lyrics that changed my life and mimic them. You often have to mimic them to like learn them. What if this is form? What if this is poetic form? And that's where it started. Also, then I wanted it to be an exchange. So I started working with other MCs, other grime producers and having that discussion about like, what if this was poetry? Like, what if this was studied at university like should it be what has been your experience because that was the other thing that was getting me is I knew lots of grime MCs that were doing like quite well but like weren't getting any arts council funding or like work weren't working it's around the time actually I remember there was like a grime crew that weren't allowed for legal reasons to perform at the South Bank or there was a lot of things happening there was form 696 that was stopping grime going into like venues and one of the questions on the first version of that form it's from the Met Police was the demographic of your audience yes. that you were marketing to. I remember that, yeah. So yeah, there was like loads of really problematic things happening. So I was like, actually, I'm quite good at getting Arts Council funding. Let's pull <laughs> some people in and like start being like, actually, should you be like writing stuff for theatres? Should you? Because I feel like though there's more money in music, it's sometimes easier to get a more stable income through some of those like traditional arts routes in this country, which we're very lucky to have. So there was just loads of things I wanted to do. Like really it was less about the story at first and more about feeling like I had some small, like my fingers were in the door of like this small door and I wanted to like rip it open and take that room apart, you know, and all of the things we're talking about are in that play, you know, and part of this process has me being, being, me being called out and me being working out like what is my job and what isn't my job. And I have said no to loads of things because I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, grime did raise me, but like it is a black music art form and, you know, it doesn't belong to me the way it belongs to a lot of my peers and having an understanding of that. And that's a big theme in the show, you know, which at the time when it first came out in 2018, I think was pretty shocking to everyone, but was really, really important 
as well, right? So I think that's also a lot of these disadvantages get glued together. Like being working class is seen as synonymous with being black. And that is really wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think like, okay, if you're calling me out on my privilege, but I'm working class, it's like, it's not. The same, that's not yes, the same totally thing. Like, what's that got yeah. to do with it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like people will assume if you're black, it means you have to be working class, or it's like, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. Um, you know, so I think we really pulled apart a lot of that intersectionality in the show, which was really enjoyable. Um, was really great just to have Grime on at the Royal Court. Know, like, sure. you said at the beginning, obviously, of the conversation about your parents coming and seeing you doing your poetry and saying should we go home now how do they engage with your art now are they open to it is it still something that is like two slightly separate parts of your life or I think it is slightly alien to them you know they didn't they didn't grow up going to the theatre like that you know so I just think it's like part of it is like what is this Mm -hmm. so now I try and take them to more stuff in general like not just my own work and then I also have to think about what work is church standard like I'm developing a new play at the moment which is about which is like an immersive rave that is largely about my queerness and parties and I could never take them to that do you know what I mean because there's would... necessarily no need is no, there not exactly. everyone has to engage with everything exactly no, no. so I'm just quite strategic about like what I share with them and try and have an understand and try and broaden their access they've not had access to art the way that I have had access yeah. to art do you know what I mean so I think it is a two-way street like I can't chuck them in the deep end of like something I'm doing and you know expect them to get it yeah of course <laughs> do you course. know what I mean so yeah but they are getting better I think particularly when I ran Mouthy them seeing their shows and seeing the value I remember like a dad of one of the Mouthies coming up to me once and being like look I don't get it but it's clearly like changing her life and is really important to her. So like, thank you. Wow, There's a lot you of what you were talking yeah. about there that, you know, which has has its has a similarity about like, that's obviously influenced you like church community because mm. in effect you're making other communities mm. that mirror the best parts of what that background has given you. And uh, are there other things from your sort of upbringing and childhood, what are the things that you feel of like, even if you live your life differently now, are the values and things that you feel really grateful for that have that you've carried with you, maybe from that religious part of your upbringing or just your upbringing in general? I think, like, I have a strong moral compass, actually. (laughs) That situation where I wasn't being getting paid, like, I felt like it wasn't just about me. Yes. You know, I feel like a real sense of responsibility is like I've stopped working with some people along the way. Like, and that's probably done me a disservice, probably cut me out of getting some work. But I just feel like I have to say this. I have a responsibility to say it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Like these are the things I represent and someone needs to say that. And a lot of the time you're saying things people don't want to hear, you know, and I just feel like I have to. So I think... I almost can't help it. Like, sometimes I'm like, Deborah, stop! And it just comes out of my <laughs> yeah. mouth. So I think that's probably like something that really has yeah, stayed with me. So we always like to end the show with a little celebration of someone you'd like to celebrate. So obviously we've just celebrated you for the last hour. Um, who would you like to celebrate today? What working class hero springs to mind? I think I want to um, celebrate Miss Jeff Raleigh, who's my RE teacher at school. Uh, she lives in Canada now. But I just remember, like, her always being there. Her just always being there. In fact, when she left and went back to Canada, Canada I, like, wrote her a letter that I still have now, like, being like, I miss you so much. Um, Yeah, I think just having someone really believe in you like that at a formative age. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe also, like, she is very religious and having someone, like, within the realms of religion that, you know, like... 
and she was my RE teacher that I could could be open about that stuff and I can be open about my sexuality in a way that I can't with my parents. Do you know mm. what I mean? To know that those two things can coexist peacefully was yes. always a really important model to me. Um, and when she comes back, we still have lunch now and she's always really there for me and she's carried on being a hero to like many, many more people, I'm sure. And what's her name, her full name? Sabrina Jaffrelli. She might have been married now, so I don't know if her last name's changed. But Okay, we're celebrating it. her as well as you today. Debris, thank you so much. Honestly, like you're smashing all the glass scenes. I feel like I'm the, like the laziest person in the world with everything you've achieved. I'm I'm a huge fan over here. And I went down like a rabbit hole last night of all your work and stuff because <laughs> I'm quite new to it. So I'm going to continue that and I want to come to that rave. Yeah, that you're yeah, yeah, yeah. The right you. to rave, come through, come through. Amazing. Thank you so much. I mean, I've been so desperate for you to meet Debris. Can you just listen to her talk forever? I find her so inspiring. Yeah, hugely inspiring. And um, yeah, I just felt really lucky to meet her. Aren't we lucky to have her? And also, I think it's just a one of my big beefs, you know. There is a proper example of someone who perhaps in conventional early education is not seen to be the absolute talent and wordsmith mm-hmm. and just articulate, brilliant woman that she is. I certainly feel like, even with all the amazing things that she's done, that's just the tip of the iceberg of, of the noise she's going to make in the world and I, for one, cannot wait to hear it. 100%. Check her out. Well, check out everything she's up to on her website at www.debrisstevenson.com. Proper Class Podcast is produced by Michelle Farr-Scott for Rangaby Productions, edited by James Torrance, with music by Tommy Music. This episode was recorded at the Umbrella Rooms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.